0: Thank you, Eric. How are we doing tonight? Good? You guys getting enough snow? <laughs> That's a wrong answer, you guys. Got to, we have to all agree that it was nice, it was glad it was here, and, and now it's it can go. But, um, <laughs> nope. Well, uh, we are glad to have you here tonight. As Eric said, Pastor Ken is... He's over in Israel, the rest of the team is making their way over there. So continue to keep them in your prayers that they would have safe travel. Uh, But if you're here on Sunday, you know what's going on. Uh, While he's gone, our executive pastor, Pastor Drew Johnson and myself are doing something kind of new, something we've never done before, and that is tackle an entire book of the Bible and do it in a series. Uh, usually, Pastor Ken does a different series on Sunday and a different one on Wednesday, but we're going to do the same series going uh, starting this last Sunday, tonight, and then for the next two Wednesdays and Sundays. And so, uh, we're going through the book of Haggai. If you've never read through it before, it's a real short book, only two chapters, but there's a ton of information in there. And uh, it's hard to say this, but but really, I don't even think six parts of a series really can do it uh, full justice. But that's where we're gonna be at uh, tonight. If you found your way there, it's just before the beginning of the New Testament if you're not familiar with it, Um, but uh, right there. So if you found your place there, tonight we're gonna be in uh, chapter one, verses three through 12. And so if you've got your Bibles with you and you've got that open, if you wouldn't mind standing with me as we read God's word uh, together, starting again in verse three. So Haggai chapter one, verse three, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, just the message that you wanna speak through this book of Haggai. Oh, Lord, uh, there's so much there, Lord, but it's, uh, it's so applicable to our lives today. And so I thank you for the time that you set aside for, for me to, to hear from you. God, and now I just ask um, that you just remove me from the picture, Lord, that these people are here, are, are here tonight to hear from you, God. And so if the things that I have down here are from you, Lord, then, then let that be. And if not, God, you, we need to hear from you. We want you to speak your truth, Lord. And so um, we just ask for your grace to do that. We ask that our hearts would be soft, our, our, our ears would be open. And uh, our hearts would be malleable, Lord, to what it is that you are doing in our life. And so we thank you for this time. We give it over to you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here on Sunday, uh, you saw... um, Drew's kind of overview of kind of how we get to where we're at in this book, but I thought it was such a great slide that I wanted to to use it again. And so if you weren't here, kind of where we're at is Israel was exiled to to, um, Babylon around 586 BC. Um, Years later in 539 BC, Babylon was actually overtaken by Persia. Uh, They conquered Babylon. Also in that year, uh, Cyrus, uh, permitted the return of a number of the exiles that so whoever wants to go back and, and to build a temple for the Lord, uh, you can do that. A really interesting account if you read in the first chapter of Ezra, the first four verses gives that account. But that's where we're introduced to Haggai and, and Zerubbabel and Joshua. And that's kind of where what Drew covered on, on Sunday, uh, did a great job at that. Uh, a few years later in 536 BC, uh, the, temp- the temple construction began under that order. But there was opposition along the way. Again, if you wanna read through Ezra, really interesting account, guys actually start writing letters to say, "Uh, we gotta stop this, we don't like this group of people, and so we need to get them to stop. And so uh, we don't have all of the details, but they were discouraged. They they found it difficult and they actually stopped building. They built the altar and they started the foundation, but that was it. And then you read in Ezra that work on the temple halted for, for 16 years. It didn't begin again until Haggai comes into the picture in 520 BC. And so for 16 years, we've got a, a temple that's in ruins. The altar is built because they, they wanted to offer sacrifices. They did offer sacrifices, but the temple itself is still in ruins. Uh, they, they stopped working on it and never picked it back up. And so that's where we get to, to Haggai's message. That's where we're at right now. And so verse two, which is the last thing that Drew, Drew covered, was verse two ends with, these people say the time has not yet come. To rebuild the Lord's house, and that gets us to where we're at. We're at tonight, and so I just want to start off with with an apology. If you came in here and are very comfortable with how you're living your life right now, um, I I take full full responsibility for that. Um, if you saw the title of, of tonight's passage, it's a time to reprioritize. And if you know anything about reprioritizing, that means that you've got to do something different. And so if you and I are here and we are comfortable in the way that we're doing things, we're just fine with with everything in its right spot, um, we're going to be invited to to do something different, to make changes. And so there's really, like I said, there's a lot of of information in these verses, a lot of different ways we could go with this. But again, for time's sake, there's four points I really want to focus on tonight. And I'm going to put them up here so you can kind of follow along with where we're at. But point one, um, it's not about time. It's about priorities. And we're going to look at the first four, uh, or uh, verses three and four for that. From there, we're gonna go from misplaced priorities lead to discontentment. And that's in verses five and six. then we're gonna take the section of verses seven through 12 and find that the purpose of discontentment is actually to lead us to God. That's what it's there for. And then after that, I kinda wanna swing back around and pick up this major theme that's in this section and actually in this book, this phrase of, of give careful thought to your ways. Or depending on your translation, it may say, consider your ways. Or um, in a Peterson's uh, paraphrase, it says, take a, a good, hard look at your life. And so that's kind of where we're going uh, tonight. And so starting off in that, in that first section, it's not about time. It's about priorities. In the verse two, people of Israel say, it's not time to build the temple. We're not giving any more description than that. But what follows next kind of gives us an idea. Because um, the first thing that God gives for Haggai to say is, well, is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while my house is a ruin? So basically, it's not that there's not time. There's not time for something that you don't want to do. You've got time for what you want to do. They had time for what's, what was important. And that's where I say that it's very applicable today because if we're honest with ourselves, we can say the same things. We, we never have time for the things that we don't want to do but we always have time for the things that are important to us, the things that we place a high value on, we have time for. So the thing that's really interesting here is that they still plan to rebuild the temple. They knew it was gonna be done. They knew that that God said it was gonna happen. So they still plan to do it, just not now. And in the same way, we can have plans to obey, but just later. But if you have small children, one one of the first lessons we teach them is that delayed obedience is disobedience. So God's given them a task to do. In fact, that was the sole job when Cyrus actually sent the, the exiles out there said, this is what you are to do to, to build this temple. And, and they haven't done it, but they've gotten distracted. They've done all sorts of other things that were important to them. And so I kind of look at this as, as almost a modern day prophecy because obviously it wasn't written to us. Okay, it was written to the people of Israel who were given this task to do, but it very well could have been. And this is what I mean by that. If we look at our own lives, there are many things, if we wait long enough to where the silence becomes awkward and painful, that God could say about us, these people say the time has not yet come. Just a few examples, and maybe they'll bring some more to your mind, And Drew and I actually kind of laughed about this. It's kind of become a joke between us when something comes along and you don't want to do it. It's like, well, the time has not yet come to do your paperwork. The time has not yet come for expense reports. But in all seriousness, we may say the time has not yet come for me to read my Bible. The time has not yet come for me to have regular fellowship with other Christian believers. The time has not yet come for me to start serving. Or maybe the time has not yet come for me to talk to that person about Jesus. Just like the people of of Israel, we know these are are things, or we would say that these are things that are important to do. And so we have plans in in our mind to do them, just not now. And again, you could insert anything that that you don't wanna do or anything that's maybe inconvenient for you to do. We have plans to do it, but, but we'll do it later. And in the same way, he could also ask us, okay, you're saying it's not the time for these things. The time has not yet come. Well, is it a time for you yourself then to watch your newest Netflix series? Or or maybe post what you ate for breakfast this morning for everyone to see? Or this is where it gets real. Um, Watch Washington State lose another apple cup. I mean, it's starting to get painful in here now. We're getting a little bit too close to home. But really, insert whatever it is in your life. What's the thing that you make time for? And it's not that that thing's bad, but is that time crowding out what God is actually calling you to do, what God is actually uh, has in his plans for you to do, obedience, really. And so these things aren't bad in themselves. Doing these things are not bad we, ob- we have permission to, to enjoy the things in life, but the problem is that if we're neglecting God's plan for our life, but yet we still have time for these things, we've got a problem. And so it's not that we don't have enough time or it's not the time has not yet come. It's the time isn't here for what we wanna do. It's a priority issue. And so that gets us into to, to step two or the, the second point of focus that we have here. When we have misplaced priorities, that leads to discontentment. Verses five and six, if you've got your Bibles open, says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Up there, you can see there's certain phrases that are underlined and bolded. And that's just, if you just read those in sequence, you can kind of get what's going on. But when we're in disobedience, when we are outside, when God has said, this is what I want you to do, and we're saying no, then whatever else we do won't prosper. And that's what they're experiencing. They're working, they're planting, but the harvest isn't, isn't what it's supposed to be. Um, They're eating, but they never have enough. They're always left wanting more. Really, this language, if you've ever read through the book of Deuteronomy, there's a lot of similarities there. In fact, this is a lot of what's going on when they're describing the blessings and the curses. God says, after he makes a covenant with the people of Israel, that if you do, if you're careful to do exactly what I command you, then you'll be blessed. Everything that you do will be blessed. The harvest will be plentiful, Your families will grow. Everything will be good. But it also follows with, if you don't do these things, then pretty much what we see in verses five and six is gonna be the outcome. And so the bigger message is basically through these guys, this is what your ancestors did. This is why they ended up in exile. This is why they ended up under God's judgment. Um, You're on the same path. You're doing the exact same things. And so again, they're, they're busy, but it, it's a fruitless prosperity. For us, it may look like you're always busy, but it seems like you're never getting anything done. I, I've heard that a lot lately from people, people saying, I feel like I, I did a lot of things today and I got nothing done. Really, it's a futile uh, race that we're in. And the reason is because we were created in God's image Our purpose is to honor him. That is the one and only moment when we actually feel fulfilled. That's what we were created to do. And when we are doing that is when we find our fulfillment, our true identity. And that is why that when obedience to God is not the most important thing, the top and foremost priority in our life, that everything that we try to fill that void with comes up empty because as a popular 90s song says, it's a God-shaped hole. Nothing else will fill it. And so anything that we try to fill it with comes up empty. And so just a simple question is, have you ever experienced this? You know, it's something that, um, feeling like you never have enough. You work hard. You take two or three jobs. You're, you're staying up late, waking up early, but you're just always behind. You're just always a little bit short, no matter what new things you try, sometimes it's really easy to spot. Sometimes you can look at somebody and be like, wow, like you're totally doing this in your flesh, but sometimes it's not so easy. And, and uh, that's pretty much what it was for basically the first six months of, of my marriage. A little over 10 years ago, um, God gave me the opportunity to, to meet my wife. And it was awesome. You know, we're involved in the church. Everything is going great. We're seeking the Lord. We've got tons of emails and stuff that we've saved where we're, we're praying for one another. We're talking about the Lord. We're doing all these things. We're going through premarital, talking about this. Oh, let's do communion at our wedding. It's gonna be amazing. And just talking about how, um, you know, I kind of laugh now at a lot of newly married couples because if you talk to anybody who's married like longer than five minutes, you can get an accurate you know, picture of what it's actually like. But we went into it and said like, you know, we're doing all these things right, we're doing this. So regardless of what the hundreds of thousands of married people have experienced in marriage, we are going to defy the odds and we are going to be different. We will not experience those, those certain things. And, and it's okay, you can, you can laugh at that, it's totally fine. It's, uh, so, so things were going great, honestly, until the day after we got married. <laughs> We we had a, a three-day honeymoon, you know, we were just spending some time in, in San Francisco, just the two of us, and basically everything that we had done up to that point just kind of went out the window, and it honestly wasn't until about, I think, our second day there, and my gracious wife just patiently let me know, um, you, you haven't read your Bible, like, you don't pray with me? Like, is this what things are going to be like? And so that was kind of a wake-up call for me. It was almost just like we had I'd done this thing, got it there, but in the same way they left the, the temple just unfinished, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm here, but I'm not actually following through with what I said. And so we got back, you know, and after, after that conversation, we got back into town and things started moving forward. But honestly, that's where we started trying to do things our own way. You know, really, I say for the first six months, uh, I would say that our marriage was in a lot of danger because we were neglecting the very thing that we needed. Okay, one of the things that that is needed that God calls us to in order for us to grow is to have community with other people. Before we got married, we were involved in a small group. We actually were were part of the leadership team of a small group, had a community of people. They were praying for us. They were encouraging us, all this. And when we got back, it was a combination of just being newly married. Uh, My wife had a job that was very, very demanding. And so that meant that we didn't see each other very often. In fact, there were times where she was gone for days at a time. And so we took the mindset that instead of going to group, any time that we have together, we've got to just we need we need need us time. That's how we're going to grow in our marriage. And so the more things we tried to cut out, but the bottom line was the the thing that we needed was the very thing that we cut out. And a lot of times it's hard to see see through this. We seem to have very very valid reasons, but at the end of the day, it's it's really just an excuse. God says, why aren't you building the temple? Why aren't you doing this? And uh, they hadn't realized that the reason that they were experiencing this want was because of the very thing that he had told them to do that they had refused to do. And so that was kind of the story. Obviously, by God's grace, um, he showed us that. And, and uh, my wife made a job change. We got involved more with people. And it was amazing how once we allowed other people to speak into our lives, we actually started making some, some progress. And, you know, and here we are uh, several, several years later and, and God is faithful to do that. But again, the, the point is that, that when our priorities are misplaced, when we are neglecting the things that God has told us, this is important. This is what you need to do. Then it leads to discontentment. And so point three is is all about discontentment. Sometimes we view discontentment as a really bad thing, but as you look at different passages in scripture, we find that discontentment has a purpose. God uses discontentment in his kindness in order to point us to him. When things are not working out how we think that they should work out, the goal is to say, God, what's going on right now? We don't always do that, but that that really is the point. And so again, Um, Apologize for the the small text on this next chunk of verses. But again, look for the underlined and bolded parts. Verses 7 through 11 say, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Why? Declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So he clearly says that he's the one who's caused this difficulty that they're experiencing. They're in a way kicking against the ghost, saying, we just gotta work harder, we just have to try this, we gotta do this differently. But he's saying, I'm the one that's causing this to happen because you are disobeying the command that I've given you. And then verse 12 is, is a lot shorter, but it really has, has a great point in there. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. The thing I really wanna focus on is again, the purpose of discontentment is that we would turn to God. That's why, that's why God allows certain, certain things to happen so that when we find out that they do actually leave us wanting more and actually with that empty feeling, that we'll actually turn to him. As he said again in, in a Deuteronomy is that if, if this happens, if you break the covenant, but you call out to me, I will hear you and have mercy. And so that's the plan. And, and honestly, as we read down through in verse 12 says, that's, that's what they did, that's what happened. They listened, they saw Haggai as being a voice from God and said, this is something that, that God is telling us. And they obeyed, the, they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. But we don't always do that. We don't always respond to discontentment that way. And I think one of the things it really comes down to is how we view discipline. How we view discipline that we experience in our lives really is determined and influenced by how we view God. So there's a couple different ways that I think, not saying that there's only two, but breaking it down into two. And the first one is um, a forced obedience. Obviously, they they obey, and each one of these will motivate us to obey, but it really is about what's going on in our hearts. So when it's a forced obedience, it's more about avoiding consequences. Okay, at my home, it looks something like, you need to do this or else. That's a motivator. As long as you find something that they care about, because when your kid just turns around and says, well, I don't care, like, well, I gotta find something else. But in this case, avoiding the consequences would look something like this Oh no, God's really mad. We better start building the temple now. And if this is our view of God, we will be on an endless trail of trying to appease him. We view God as he's mad at us, and we've got to do these things so that the the, the crops do what they're supposed to do, that our families do what they're supposed to do. And it turns into an appeasing thing, it's a forced obedience but that's not what God's after. The other one is a glad obedience. It's an obedience that's, that's, that's based on an appreciation for his grace. Instead of the, oh no, God's angry, we better start getting to work now. It's a, it's a realization that, that sin has its own consequence. We didn't do what he told us to do, and so we experienced these things. We, in a way, we brought it upon ourselves. So sin has its own consequence, but God was gracious enough to point out our error so that we could correct our ways. You see, God's primary concern wasn't the, the temple building just in itself, just a building. Like, you guys just need to build this building. If that was the case, he could have gotten anybody to build it and to finish it and just say, I just needed a finished, I just needed that finished. But it wasn't the, just the fact that it was a building, it was what it stood for as Drew said on Sunday, it was a representation. It was a representation of God's presence. He said, build a house that I may dwell in. And during that time, that was was the house of God. And so he was concerned about their heart. He didn't wanna see them just obey because they they were afraid of what would happen if they didn't. But he was always seeking and looking for the heart of his people as he's looking for our, our heart today. And the, the, the big thing, the concerning thing was that they had gotten used to the absence of God's presence. And that's a dangerous place to be. If you read the story of, of Samson, and when we hear and we know that he had this, this amazing strength, all the way up until he doesn't. <laughs> And the tragic thing of that story is that he didn't even realize the difference. <laughs> he had gotten so used to what he was doing and doing things in his strength that he went once again to just show his strength and it wasn't there. The power of God had left him and he didn't even realize it. And so God's concern was, you, you guys don't have any concern. You guys are totally okay with pursuing what you, what you wanna do and neglecting my, my care for you. And one thing that just probably maybe this morning just came to, to a real halt is, is not only the way that we view discipline is based on the way that we view God. If you're here and you've got kids, there's a really direct correlation there too. God's really just showed me that the way that I handle and the way that I discipline my kids, the way that I instruct my kids is very, very largely related to the way that I view God and the way that I view that God views me. If you think that God is harsh, saying you better toe the line or you're coming, the chances are pretty high that that's how you're gonna view your kids. And, And so that was just, that was something that just, oh God showed me, like, am I more concerned about my, my kids' hearts, or am I more concerned that you guys do exactly what I say, when I say it, the way that I say it, and, and becoming more of a dictator in my house? And before it gets too serious, that may just be me, that may not be you guys, so But it's important for us to realize that there's a, there's a correlation there. The way that we view God extends further than that. And so as we look through what's happening in those verses, I wanna go back and touch on this, di- this, this idea of give careful thought to your ways. It's not only a theme in, in tonight's passage, but it's a theme of this entire book. And, and uh, there's just a lot to unpack there, especially in the day and age that we live. Again, I I refer to this as really a modern day prophecy because it was a command to them, but I would say even more so in today. And the reason is, is because in our culture today, this is becoming more and more and more difficult to do, but it's absolutely necessary. So as we look back at at the people who were given the command to, to rebuild the temple, what kept the Israelites from giving careful thought to their ways? The two things that we see are listed are they're they're saying time. The time has not yet come. But again, we've already talked about It's not that they didn't have time. It's that God wasn't the priority. God was not what they were concerned about. And obeying him was not a priority to him. The second thing that that we see there is that the work on their houses kept them from giving careful thought to what they were doing or what was going on in their lives. And again, it wasn't wrong for them to have homes. It wasn't even wrong for them to do work on their homes but it took over as priority. It took the place of what God had actually commanded them to do. But tonight, I just wanna pose the question, what about us? Okay, we haven't been given the command to build the temple, but what keeps us from giving careful thought to our ways today? The answer may be different for each one of us, But again, even the fact that we use that term, painful, awkward silence, shows that that answer is is there. So what keeps you from giving careful thought to what you're doing? And again, depending on how we view God, the very first thing that might come to mind is just fear. I don't wanna take time to think what God actually wants me to do because he's gonna send me to Africa or he's gonna make me marry someone that I don't even like, or he's gonna, whatever it is, depending on our view of God, we may just not even wanna go there. But just some examples from from my own experience. In the last season, I would say that I've been in, some really things that God has just showed me, you know what, like your priorities aren't right and it's really affecting your spirit. It's affecting your relationship with me. I think time is always there. I think that's the first one. I think that there's always going to be a need to reprioritize time. I think that there's always things that are are in want of our time. And the ironic thing about that is it actually takes time to sit down and hear from God. It takes time to be to be quiet and still and take a good, hard, long look at your life to say, what are you doing right now? What is going on in your life? Is it a result of disobedience? Is it not? Is it something that you need to stand firm in? To really ask what the end result is of the path that we're currently taking. But the truth is we already feel short on time. Time is limited. And what we do with it matters. And a big reason for that is, in my case, it's not a house. In my case, and looking at the world around us, I would say it's it's stuff, or more specifically, I would say technology. And I want to kind of unpacks a little bit, just maybe stuff that you already are aware of, but it's stuff that's very real and stuff that's out there. Some of the staff here kind of laugh at me because I just I describe that you know I have I have a love hate relationship with my phone. Technology can be really, really useful. It can be great. If you look up maps, it can get you lost in a second. It's great. But in all honesty, I mean, we use technology here. You know, we talk about, we have an app here so that you can access teaching so you can find out what's going on. It's great things there. It can be really, really useful. But one thing that I learned in school, because if you don't know this, um, I went to, to school to study computers, which is why I'm qualified to be a pastor. One thing that was said in, the, in school that I'll always remember, and this was, bef- this was years ago, before we have the things that we have in front of us today. They said that as technology increases, as it will, it, it's a requirement that responsibility must also increase. In order for us not to be taken over, it's, it's, it's absolutely a requirement that responsibility must increase at the same rate that technology increases but I'm pretty sure every one of us in this room can answer that question and say, that hasn't happened. Because the truth is, whether you know it or not, your phone is designed and its intended purpose, if you have a smartphone, is to take all of your time. And the key word there is all. And that's where the connection, that's where the love-hate relationship comes in. Because if all of my time is taken up, there's no time left for me to give careful thought to what I'm doing. And it goes deeper than that because not as only all of my time taken up, it's taken up by what other people want it to be taken up by. We've probably, a lot of us have had this experience, but I had just this last you know, Christmas season over at my parents' house and having a conversation with my brother-in-law and he had mentioned you know, being bummed out that uh, an artist that he really liked was coming to town and he was gonna be out of town. I don't even know where my phone was at that time, but the next time I opened it up, and started scrolling and looking at you know one of my friend's things, lo and behold, I've got a new friend suggestion, and it's somebody that I don't even know. It's a it's a musician that it it happened to hear. And so there are a bunch of very smart people that went to school for computers that are being paid to tell me only what the people paying them want me to hear. And it's a billion dollar industry that's goal is to make sure that I don't have a spare moment of time left. Basically tells me that if I don't fight against it, then I'm going to be in a way reprogrammed by what somebody else wants me to tell. And I'm just gonna take a guess that that person does not have God's plan and will for my life in their best interest. But just like other things, all those things, the notifications, the things that we can do or the things that are saying, you need this, you need this, you need this, it lies. And all it does is leave you wanting more. You find that you're more anxious, that you're more worried, and that you're more concerned about things that they tell you you should be concerned about rather than, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What are you calling me to do? And so again, it's not that having a phone is bad or that phones are bad, but the problem is when they have us, we are supposed to have control over this device to, to be the ones who are stewarding this device. But when that gets flipped on its head and now our device is, is owning us, we've got a problem. And if you can relate to that, then great. Maybe, maybe you have doubts about that and say you're totally over-exaggerating. I just wanna challenge you to do away with it. And I'm not talking about extreme things, but there's things that you can do basically that as I found in my own experience and, and I won't get into all of it, but, but definitely certain things I would say, how, how true is this? And I found that once I did the work and started taking off a lot of the things, a lot of the notifications, a lot of the things that were just always screaming out my name, like you need to look at me, this is important. You need to know who won the last Oscar. It's really, really important. You need to know what the weather's going to be like because you do not have a window that you cannot look out and see. But as I started removing those things and say, do I really need this? Is this just taking it my time? Is this just something that whenever I get a spare moment, instead of actually talking to another human being or maybe sitting down and, and doing something that's actually going to add meaning to my life or add meaning to somebody else's life, I'm just grabbing this thing. And next thing I know, because the thing is programmed to do this, as soon as you open it up and start looking at, it's just a spider web. This thing leads to this thing, to this thing, to this thing, to this thing, to this thing. And before I know it, all time is gone. And so again, that may not be you. That, that may just be, be me. But it's something that we are all aware of because if it's not us, we know somebody who it is. I've had far too many conversations with parents talking about what their teenagers' play dates look like or their, what their other interaction with their friends are. You know, we live in society now, or maybe even in this room now, you got people, two people talking to each other. We're in the same room, but you're in different tables and you're just talking back to each other saying, what's this guy saying? He's crazy. But to kind of wrap things up, I just wanna go very, very, very practical. And I want to kind of put a disclaimer out there because this is very, very and where I felt God was, was calling me to go. And I was just, I argued with them for a long time because honestly, when you have a group like this, It's a Wednesday night. Obviously, not everyone that's here on a Sunday morning is here. I'm like, God, really? Are you really sure that they need to? It sounds kind of insulting. But I just want to get really, really practical. Remember, as we go back to the timeline, while the temple was not finished and left in ruins, they had the altar. and, And as we read through it through Ezra, they were making sacrifices on it. But that in itself did not make them in line with God's will, as we've seen. And it reminds me of, if you've read through the book of 1 Samuel, the example of Saul, when God had commanded Saul to go and completely destroy this civilization. But he didn't do it. He brought back the king and he also brought back some animals because he said, I brought the animals back so that I could sacrifice. And 1 Samuel Chapter 15 and verse 22 says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So we see what's important to God's heart. So for the people of Israel, obedience was very clearly defined as your task is to go and finish the rebuilding of the temple. But again, what about us? How do we know what obedience, or how do we know what God's will is for our life? And I'll just break it down in two ways. I think there's two different, different parts to this. I think first of all, um, the first one is really, really simple. If, if for some reason you're here tonight and you've never given your life over to to following Jesus, to following his plan for your life, that's step one, and I can very easily show you that. John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus himself says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one I sent. If that's never happened, that's the first step of obedience. That's the first step of saying, this is what God is calling you to do. It's not a belief he exists, like, oh, I know that he, he lived. It's a put your trust in him. It's a, from this moment forward, I'm going to follow God's plan for my life and, and, and stop pursuing all these other things that everyone else is telling me that I need to have and the, all the things that are going to bring me happiness and fulfillment. But if you've already done that and still wondering what God's plan for your life is or what obedience looks like This is the part that I I really wrestled with God. Because the thing that he kept coming back to is if you wanna know, I've talked to a lot of people and they're like, I just wanna know what God's will. And they just want, they've got their pen out and their paper and they're just like, just tell me. If you tell me I'm supposed to be a veterinarian, I'm there. Like you tell me I'm supposed to, I can't do that for you. The truth is that if you wanna know what God's will for your life is, then you have to read his word. And because of some of the other conversations I've had, I wanna add on to that, all of it. There's stories that, that we have either done ourselves or we know people who just, they come down to read the Bible and they just open it up saying, you know, wherever I open it to, that's what God's gonna speak to me today. And I'm not gonna say that it, he doesn't ever do that. I'm just gonna say he usually doesn't. And actually sometimes when people do that, it, it, it can turn out catastrophic. But this is really the practical takeaway for us, I think, to understand. If it is already us, then great. If it's not, then this next part is for you. If you wanna know God's will, you've gotta read his word and you've gotta read all of it. This is the top priority for Jesus. And keep in mind that in Jesus's day, the scriptures that he studied were only the Old Testament scriptures. I've heard some people that just say, I just read the New Testament but all of it points to Jesus. That's how you will know what his will for your life is. And a lot of you, in fact, probably the majority of you here have been a church attender for years. In fact, you've attended this church for years. You may be serving, you may be actively involved, you may have all these different things or maybe these sacrifices that you have offered, but you've never actually read through the Bible. And I don't say that to condemn you, to guilt you, because quite honestly, it's more and more and more common every single day. But here's the challenge. If that's you, as I said at the very beginning, really the heart of this message is about reprioritizing. And if that's you, if that's something that you've never done, I want to, I just want to offer a challenge. It's hard, that's why a lot of people don't do it. But it's so worth it. If it seems impossible, like you will never have time to do it, here's something to think about that I came about over the break that just kind of, I had to stop and pause for a moment. As you're looking at, at, at this and you see like, wow, that's a big book, I've never gotten past like a teenage novel before. Like, yeah, it's big, but here, here's some very, very practical things. If I were to stand up here and read just as I read tonight, out loud, and at the same pace that I read, it would take me just under 71 hours to read the entire thing. Out loud at a comfortable pace. And, and for those of you who hate math, I'm sorry for what I'm about to do. I'll try to make it easy for you. But I think It's important. Because in the same way that I think a program like we've mentioned on Sundays, a program like Financial Peace University says, here's some tools to get you started. Sometimes all we need is a little bit of motivation. And if we take that and go with it and it builds and it builds, it has the opportunity to change the direction of our life. So here's something for us to take a careful look at. It takes just under 71 hours to read the entire Bible. There's 24 hours in a day. There's 365 days in a year. I'll do the math for you. That comes down to 8,760 hours in a year that we have if God gives us to live. And so if it takes, let's go up to 71 hours to read the entire Bible. What that amounts to is 12 minutes a day. Now, this is where it really gets real because A lot of us are in the place that I was in probably throughout most of my high school is that you identify as a Christian, you go to church, you do this and that, you play in the worship band, you do all these things, but you don't actually know for yourself what God's word says to you. And so the question that I have for myself, the question that I have for any other person who finds themselves in that position, is do we really not have 12 minutes a day to know what God has said? Or why we wouldn't dare to go this far and to actually say this, is it just that it's not really that important? We're kind of like in the consumer Christianity mode, where we're like, well, I take this this from this and I've got this from this and I've got this from this, and I kind of put it all together and make my own version. But as I ask that question, I really want to emphasize and even overemphasize, this is not about guilt. The message of Haggai is not about guilting people into action. And if you've ever been guilted into something, you kind of know why. We talk about this when it comes to, to asking people to serve in different areas of the church. We can guilt people into stuff. And they'll do it for a little bit. But because God hasn't prompted them to do that, because it's not something that they're wanting to do out of obedience, it's really only temporary. So guilt may motivate a temporary change in action. But again, God's not just after you. He doesn't want you to say, see God, like I read through my Bible in a year, here's my checklist to prove it. He's after our heart. Only a true desire to know who God is and to truly and sincerely want to know what his plan for your life is will motivate a lasting change that will keep you coming back to his word day after day, day after day, day after day and say, what do you have to tell me today? And so it's not about guilt. God's message through Haggai is an exhortation for all of us to give careful thought to our life, to the ways that we're living our life. To give careful thought for the purpose of making changes as necessary. As he shows you, as he, if he's shown you things tonight that something is not in its right spot, then we've got a task to do. The exhortation is to give careful thought to our life and make changes as necessary because our choices really do matter. The things that you and I do today will form who we are tomorrow and vice versa. And if you start, maybe for the very first time reading tomorrow morning, it might be slow at first. But as it goes on and goes on and goes on and you start to understand and you start to see the different connections, you start to understand, oh, that's why they say that or that's why this is there. It's as one uh, pastor, several pastors actually quoted it, it's, it's a long obedience in the same direction. God is after our heart. And so the question is, as it always is, is are we going to accept his invitation or are we content to live in the comfortable matter that we're living in now? Father, I just thank you for your word. God, I, my hope Lord is that, God, this is what you want us to hear tonight. Lord, I don't know everyone's story. All I know is mine. God, I just pray, Lord, that individually and also corporately, Lord, I pray that you would stir up in us a desire, a hunger, a love for you, a love for your word, that every single one of us would realize that this is something that, that we can do. God, if we wanna know who you are, if we wanna know who we are, if we wanna know how you view us, if you wanna know what it is that you would have us do in our life, God, that it's right there. You've given us your word, Lord. And so I pray that you would just put it in our hearts. Lord, give us a hunger. Lord, it wouldn't just be something that we just muster up the strength, but put it in us, God, to to not be able to to go a day without just feeding on your word as we wake up each day and feed on, on physical food, Lord. So God, I just pray again that our hearts would be soft. Lord, that, that your words would not fall on deaf ears, but your words would take root in our lives, in our hearts, and you would begin or you would continue just to shape us and make us more like you. We just thank you for your constant pursuit. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your grace and your compassion that leads us to repentance, Lord. And we just ask asking in Jesus' name, amen.